0: So that's a big concern is that the more all of this ice sitting in here can melt, the bigger the flood's gonna be.
1: Scientists work to understand Juno's glacial outburst flooding. From Alaska Public Media, this is statewide news on Alaska News Nightly for Wednesday, August 16th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also, tonight, new federal funding will help salmon in Alaska cross under roadways.
2: This is not just a a question of, of conservation or preservation. It's also a question of economic security and food security.
1: Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
3: You know that eating fruits and vegetables supports good health. But did you also know that frozen and canned produce offers the same health benefits as fresh, It's true. Whether fresh, frozen, canned, or from the land, eating fruits and veggies can lead to a long and healthy life. So when it comes to getting the fruits and veggies you need to stay healthy, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by SNAP.
1: Alaska researchers say most of Anchorage is safe from the threat of a tsunami, but they warn that under certain conditions a tsunami could affect Girdwood, Hope, and the Port of Alaska. That's according to first-of-its-kind tsunami hazard modeling of Upper Cook Inlet in a report out today from the Alaska Earthquake Center and the State Division of Geological and Geophysical Surveys. Here's State Earthquake and Tsunami Hazards Program Manager Barrett Salisbury.
4: One major thing that this report does is dispel the myth that there is zero chance a tsunami could reach Anchorage. We know that that's not true. There are low-lying coastal areas that will potentially be inundated above high tide, but thankfully. The majority of homeowners in Anchorage and people will not need to um, worry about their homes or their properties.
1: According to the report, if a big enough earthquake hit in the right location at the right time, specifically when there is a high tide in Upper Cook Inlet, a tsunami could overrun parts of the coast. The study authors said in a press conference today that the potential tsunami impacts to the port are unclear and would require more research. About 75% of all waterborne freight to Alaska enters the state through the port of Alaska in Anchorage. Despite confusion from tsunami warnings buzzing residents' phones, large earthquakes in the region will continue to trigger alerts for the entire Anchorage area. Dave Snyder, warning coordinator with the National Tsunami Warning Center in Alaska, says his agency is working to solve the problem of over-alerting.
2: Today we're limited by the ability to
1: specifically warn very targeted parts of our geography, And in the future, we'll be able to warn very specific parts of our coastline, including the Anchorage coastline. But right now, uh, the limitations that we have will likely uh, alert a lot more people than actually need to move away from the coast. It's unclear when a more targeted alert system will be in place. Researchers say people near any coastline when a big earthquake hits should always be concerned about a potential tsunami and head to higher ground. To find a link to the full Upper Cook Inlet tsunami study and updated inundation maps, look for this story on our website, alaskapublic.org. It sounds like an Alaska transportation riddle, but how does a salmon cross a road? The answer will soon be with financial help from the Federal Transportation Department. U.S. DOT is sending Alaska more than $44 million to install fish-friendly culverts and other means to get migrating salmon to the other side of roads. Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports on the first round of grants from a new federal program.
5: U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg admits he's a fish out of water when it comes to talking about fish migration.
2: When you take on a job like Secretary of Transportation, there are some things you know you're going to be working on, planes, trains, and automobiles. And there are other things, like anadromous fish passage, that you do not realize will be on your plate.
5: Anadromous fish, that's salmon and other species that live in the sea as adults and travel up freshwater streams to spawn. Roads that cross fish streams are supposed to be designed for fish migration, but Alaska still has lots of culverts that fish can't get through. Sometimes the problem is water volume, with the culvert acting as a pinch point. Some culverts are perched too high above the stream bed. The DOT has a new program to fund better fish crossings. Among the first grants are nine projects across Alaska, from Klawak, To King Salmon. The largest grant is $20 million to the state of Alaska to improve a dozen stream crossings along the Parks Highway. The state says when complete, that project will open 50 miles of anadromous streams leading to hundreds of acres of lake habitat. Secretary Buttigieg says the program benefits fishing communities.
2: This is not just a a question of of conservation or preservation. It's also a question of economic security and food security.
5: The program was funded through the bipartisan infrastructure law. Nationwide, it supplies grants of $200 million a year. Reporting from Anchorage, I'm Liz Ruskin.
1: Juneau is at the mercy of the ever-evolving Mendenhall Glacier. Each year, water captured behind a glacial ice dam releases into Mendenhall River, causing a flood. Typically, flooding is minor, but this year floodwaters tore through Mendenhall Valley with more force than ever before, gnawing through the riverbank and undermining homes that once seemed safe. A few days later, a small group of scientists took a helicopter to the source of the flood to figure out why it was so devastating this year and what that might mean for future floods in Juneau. KTOO's Anna Kenny went with them and has this story.
6: Hydrologist Aaron Hood is shuffling across patches of vivid blue ice. He and two other scientists follow a silty channel that runs between a steep mountain slope and the edge of Mendenhall Glacier.
0: So this, last week, would have all we would have been all underwater here.
6: They're headed to a glacial basin known as Suicide Basin. It sits about two miles above the glacier's terminus. Just a few days ago, 13 billion gallons of water drained out of that basin and carved through here. Then it spilled down to Mendenhall Lake and out into Mendenhall River, which rose nine feet in a matter of hours. It was the worst glacial outburst flood in Juno's history. The team moved towards the mouth of the channel, weaving through small streams of water in dripping house-sized blocks of ice that were left behind by the flood. After a steep ascent over loose boulders, they're standing at the lip of Suicide Basin. It's a deep, bowl-shaped valley dwarfed by peaks surrounding it. On one end, the vast expanse of the Mendenhall Glacier. The glacier here acts as a dam, trapping rain and meltwater in the valley. Before the flood, it was filled to the brim. Now it's empty. That's because when the water builds up enough pressure, it cracks through the ice. Then it works its way through those cracks, out under the glacier, and downstream to the Mendenhall River, triggering the flood. That same process has happened every year since 2011. But Hood has been studying the glacier at the University of Alaska Southeast for more than two decades. And he remembers a time before that.
0: When I moved here, there was no waterfall because it was all ice, but the entire basin was filled with the glacier so there was no room for the water to fill up. But the glacier is
6: receding rapidly, in part due to human-caused climate change. So that's what revealed the basin in the first place. And as the glacier keeps melting, it continues to change the size and shape of the basin. Understanding how it's changing can help scientists better predict future floods. At the basin's edge, Hood lays out a miniature helipad and a small drone. Start the drone flies back and forth across the basin over the course of a few hours. It takes thousands of aerial photos to capture every crack and crevice. Even when it's empty, the basin is filled with huge chunks of ice that were left behind by glacial retreat.
0: So that's a big concern is that the more all of this ice sitting in here can melt, the bigger the flood's going to be.
6: And scientists believe that the ice is melting faster than ever. At the same time as the glacier melts, it's pulling back from the edge of the basin, making it wider. That means there's both more meltwater and more space to store that water. So there's the potential for larger floods. But that's only one factor that determines how bad a flood will be. Hydrologist Ed Neal of Alaska Hydroscience says the trickier part is understanding how fast the water drains from the basin.
2: You know, you got X amount of water. If you let it out a garden hose, it's going to take a long time to drain it. If you let it out a fire hose, it's going to take
0: a short time to drain it.
6: This year, it was more like a fire hose. The water drained fast, causing a higher flood peak and more damaging flow. But the drainage channels where water comes out are buried in tons of ice. They're basically impossible to get to. This leaves scientists with an unsolvable equation. With the drone survey, they can only find one variable, which means predicting Juno's glacial outburst floods will remain a bit of a crapshoot. What they can say for sure is that another major glacial outburst flood will come, Hood says that the threat of flooding will remain until the Mendenhall Glacier melts away to a point where it can no longer dam the basin.
0: This flood will probably occur for decades. Um, It's unlikely that we would have experienced the largest flood within the first 10 years or so.
6: Meanwhile, extreme rainfall is becoming more frequent across southeast Alaska. If the next big glacial outburst flood coincides with a drenching rainstorm, the damage could be even worse. So the residents who live along the bank of Mendenhall River shouldn't expect a major flood every year, but they should expect something worse in the coming decades. Because high above Juneau, the basin keeps growing. In Juneau, I'm Anna Kenny.
1: Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, the tribal chief in Hooslia is convincing families to stay by addressing the village housing crisis.
4: If you have a loss here, it's not one family that suffer. We all suffer because that one person's connected to everybody.
1: That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaskan News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio
7: station.
3: What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope. There's joy. There's love. There's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org/slash/share-your-strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska.
1: Two ash eruptions at Shishaldin volcano disrupted air travel to the Aleutians yesterday. A Dutch Harbor Airport representative said a Raven-Alaska afternoon flight from Anchorage to Unalaska was canceled, and two Aleutian Airways flights were affected. One morning flight to the island was delayed by 30 minutes, and an afternoon flight from Anchorage to King Salmon was rerouted back to Anchorage. The first eruption, around 3.35 a.m., released a 35,000-foot ash cloud that slowly drifted northeast into the Bering Sea toward western interior Alaska, according to the National Weather Service second eruption released a 16,000-foot plume just after 3 p.m. There have been several such events at the volcano since this eruption began July 12th, and it's unknown how long the eruption will last. Previous eruptions at Shishaldan have gone on for months. You can report ash fall and stay up to date on volcanic activity on the Alaska Volcano Observatory's website, avo.alaska.edu. A key employee for one of Alaska's major arts organizations has received a federal immigration visa, ending a lawsuit over the case. The Alaska Beacon reports that Sitka Fine Arts Camp is withdrawing its federal immigration lawsuit after immigration officials approved the visa needed for its technical theater director. The lawsuit involved Dinoosh Vidana Patherana, who runs programs for the camp and is in charge of the Sitka School District's multi-million dollar performing arts center. He holds a Sri Lankan passport and needed a visa to continue working in Sitka, but the federal government initially determined that the theater manager's skills did not meet the standard for an H-1B visa given to people who have special technical skills. Sitka Fine Arts Camp sued over that decision, and it was reversed quickly. A lawyer for Sitka Fine Arts Camp said Vedana Patharana is already back on the job. The lack of affordable housing is a crisis across Alaska. It's one of the reasons the state is losing working-age people every year. Labor shortages and high cost of supplies contribute to the slow pace of building new housing, but leaders in one interior village are using grant funding and other creative solutions to keep families. Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra has more.
7: Emily Penn just moved into a new four-bedroom house with her boyfriend and her two toddlers. They live in the interior village of Hooslia.
5: There's so much more room.
7: Before this, Penn says she and 11 family members were crammed into a three-bedroom house. She says she loved living with family, but it was crowded. Now, her kids are taking advantage of the new space. They love it. They can run around everywhere, and they have their own rooms and a playroom. Housing shortages are a consistent problem throughout Alaska, but building new housing is more challenging in rural areas, where costs are almost always higher, and it's difficult to transport supplies. And in rural villages, even losing one family is difficult. If someone has to leave Huslia, they're leaving family, a tight-knit community, ties to Athabascan culture, and closeness to nature. Chief Carl Bricket is the first chief of the Huslia tribe. Chief Bricket says he wants to make sure all 360 people who live in the village can stay.
4: If you have a loss here, it's not one family that suffer, we all suffer because that one person's connected to everybody.
7: Kuslia is on the banks of the Khoikon River, a tributary of the Yukon. The village is concerned about erosion, so Penn's new home is far from the bank. It's in a row of five identical houses with beige siding and blue roofs along a sandy road. They were funded by a federal COVID relief grant. Residents pay utility bills but no mortgage payments. The aim is to reduce the number of families living with multiple generations under one roof. And with that same funding, the village repaired 10 crumbling roofs to extend the life of existing homes. Chief Brigette says Huslia needs to keep building to allow the community to expand.
4: To have a thriving community, you actually have to have uh, projects year after year or else you'll have out-migration. So a community of my size, we have to have anywhere from 2 to $3 million of work annually.
7: Chief Brigette knows jobs are part of the equation, too. So he says he's worked hard to keep the labor local. He says the five houses were built with 100% local labor.
4: When you do have projects, you can't hire everybody. So like us, we kind of look at trying to focus to hire one from each family. So each family benefits from not only somebody getting a house in the community, but actually benefit from one of their family members earning wages.
7: New houses don't become available often, and the demand far outstrips supply. The tribe got about 60 applications for the blue-roofed houses. But for many years, leaders in Huslia have kept costs low for people who want to build their own home. Residents can apply for a free piece of village land.
4: They make a request for the lot. They have five years to construct a home, but we do not charge for the, the acre of land or whatever lot is turned over.
7: Chief Brigette says for now, he's grateful that in the past few years, 15 families have gotten new or repaired housing. He's not sure how funding will come together in the future, but he does know that people in Hooslia stay for a reason. The sense of community is strong, and people live a subsistence lifestyle Chief Brigette says would be hard to find in other places.
4: In my mind, we're kind of going against the grain They're not going to drive us out of the woods. We're going to stay here. This is our roots. It's a beautiful community.
7: Chief Brigette has one more year in his term, and he says they're on track to see five to seven more homes finished before then. If Penn and her family hadn't gotten their house, they would have left Hooslia. But Penn didn't want to move. I wanted to stay here, just be with my family. If they'd left, she and her kids would have had to take a charter plane to visit her family. In Hooslia, I'm Rachel Cassandra.
1: Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by
3: Princess Lodges, offering glass-domed railcar tours to Talkeetna and Denali National Park for Alaska summer adventures. Your journey begins at princesslodges.com. Whether this is your first try to quit or you've been down this path before, Alaska's Tobacco Quitline can help you quit for good. Get help creating a plan that is right for you no matter if you smoke cigarettes, vape, use smokeless tobacco, or ICMIC. With options like calling a coach, receiving text messages, and nicotine replacement therapy with patches or gum, you can quit your way at any time of day or night. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quitline at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quitline
1: from oyster to kelp farmers mariculture industry members gathered to share their experiences as part of a five-year 49 million dollar project to develop mariculture in alaska the kenai peninsula economic development district held a mariculture meetup last wednesday at kenai peninsula college kachamak bay campus in homer to connect industry members, and to gather information on how to sustainably develop Alaska's mariculture industry. The meetup had multiple speakers and breakout sessions for people to learn about the challenges of the industry and to discuss potential solutions. Marie Bader, a former oyster farmer with decades of experience, provided a historical perspective for mariculture on the peninsula and
0: highlighted its potential in the state. Commercial fishing is dominated, but we can grow stuff right in our backyards of water gardens and commercial gardens for the benefit of the whole world.
1: The event is part of a five-year project run by four economic development districts in the state and the Alaska Mariculture Alliance. Last year, the project received a $49 million Build Back Better grant to sustainably develop the state's mariculture industry. The Alaska Mariculture Alliance defines mariculture as the production of aquatic shellfish, like oysters, and plants, like kelp, but not finned animals. Alaska State Representative Sarah Vance also attended the meetup to learn more about the mariculture industry and to get feedback from attendees on a new bill related to reducing regulation for mariculture leases.
8: I'm here to find out if this bill is something that will help the industry get their ideas on what it should be and um, craft the piece of legislation to help promote their industry and make the business easier for them to do what they do best, and that's farming.
1: Kenai Peninsula Economic Development District Special Projects Manager Cassidy Cameron said the meetup identified some challenges in the industry, such as bottlenecks and testing oysters to see if they're safe to eat. The meetup, combined with continued collaboration with the Mariculture Alliance, gave the district's vital information for future actions.
6: We're trying to make sure that
7: we are approaching and strategizing in a really intentional way and thoughtful manner and um, acknowledge all the stakeholders uh, and partners that are involved and make sure that we can develop this industry that can go beyond the scope of the project.
1: In a visit to Homer on Thursday, U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski also spoke about the Keep America's Waterfronts Working Act, a bill that would open up research and growth of the mariculture industry.
3: We're working to incorporate additional avenues to help those who are in these very entrepreneurial areas, helping with research through the programmatic funding, which I think is also going to be important, making grant opportunities available.
1: Moving forward, the project will continue to support mariculture business owners through providing industry-specific loans, equipment recommendations, and doing market research to expand where products can be sold. While the amount of garbage Sitka ships out of town won't be getting smaller anytime soon, the amount of space it takes up will be shrinking. The city installed a new solid waste compactor earlier this summer, and the $3 million machine is finally up and running. As KCAW's Catherine Rose reports, the huge machine is eerily reminiscent of a famous movie compactor and might be a new hope for putting the squeeze on Sitka's high garbage bills.
7: You know, it's not going to take them long to figure out what happened to us. Could
0: be worse. It's worse.
8: Remember in Star Wars when Leia, Luke, Han Solo, and Chewie fall down a garbage chute while sneaking around the Death Star? They land in a trash heap, brown water up to their knees, where some space monster we never really see, save a lime green eyeball and a lone tentacle, is lurking just below the surface.
2: There's something alive in
0: here. That's your imagination.
8: But that's that's the least of their problems
0: a bad feeling about this.
8: Slowly, the walls start closing in on them. Fortunately, our heroes managed to escape the Empire's trash compactor relatively unscathed. It's hard not to think of this scene when I visit the transfer station in Sitka to get a glimpse of the city's new solid waste compactor. After all, the Death Star was Kind of like an island, and they probably had to ship their solid waste to Tatooine. Yeah, it definitely kind of reminds me of Star Wars. <laughs> it's kind
2: of, four. it goes a little dystopian, you know, yeah. it's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, who deals with garbage? <laughs>
8: <laughs> That's Mike Stenberg. He's the maintenance and operations superintendent for the city. I quickly discover that the transfer station is a pretty loud place to do an interview. Every few minutes, a truck backs into the covered garage to dump a load of garbage for the compactor to crush. And it doesn't smell as bad as I thought it would.
2: Well, we're fortunate because uh, we're usually, you know, 50-ish degrees. So right now, this time of year, slightly above a milk cooler. So doesn't happen so fast.
8: It might be in part because they have a new system, Until this year, the city was pushing garbage into open-top shipping containers. Then they'd use an excavator bucket to press the garbage down manually. Sitka's solid waste is shipped out by barge and then driven to a landfill in eastern Washington. In 2020, Alaska Marine Lines announced it would no longer allow several southeast communities, including Sitka, to ship garbage out in open-top containers with limited compaction, they said it was part of an effort to reduce the risk of shipping fires at sea.
2: They feel more comfortable with us using this closed container,
8: mm-hmm.
2: and um, so we hope that that helps improve that as well. I mean, we don't, we don't want to be the the reason for a fire. Um, but you know, that's a that's also a great point to bring up that we have to be careful as a community.
8: Compaction into a closed off space reduces the smell, and it has some other benefits. Before the compactor was installed, they were struggling to manage the wildlife at the station. It was a scavenger bird paradise. And bears even got their share of the action.
2: We did actually have bear issues where they were literally getting into the container itself and getting trapped in the container. So they'd get down in there and yeah, it's kind of a bad deal.
8: The new compactor does have its limits though. First, it can only fit items that are shorter than seven feet long. Say my car is seven feet long or under seven feet, can it crush my car? I mean, is it that strong?
2: <laughs> it's, it's strong enough to, to do some really, really amazing things, but your car and metals are not permitted in the compactor.
8: Metals, flammable materials, concrete, and other hazardous materials aren't permitted in the compactor. It's an expensive piece of equipment, Including installation and shipping from Oregon, the new system cost the city around $3 million. But Stenberg says the hope is that compacting garbage more efficiently into fewer shipping containers will save the city money in the long run. Time and data will tell.
2: I'm really excited about the new equipment and what it means for our community. We've made a large investment in this process and in this new compactor. And I want to make sure that our community gets our money's worth out of it.
8: And while it's not the perfect solution to expensive solid waste in Sitka, Stenberg hopes the compactor will help control costs right now. One day, a more robust recycling program and reducing consumption could play a bigger role. But that future is far, far away.
4: This is our most desperate hour.
6: Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope.
8: Reporting in Sitka, I'm Katherine Rose.
1: That's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. We had reports tonight from Liz Ruskin in Anchorage, Anna Caney in Juneau, Sophia Stewart-Rossi in Unalaska, Rachel Cassandra in Hooslia, Jamie Deep in Homer, and Catherine Rose in Sitka, or a galaxy far, far away, I'm not sure. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde, Tim Rocky is our producer, and I'm Casey Grove. Good night. News Nightly was made possible by
3: Alaska Air Cargo, providing Gold Streak Express shipping for urgent deliveries throughout Alaska, with connections to more than 100 destinations in the lower 48 and Hawaii. More at alaskacargo.com. And by ConocoPhillips, Alaska, building the next generation of Alaska's workforce through investments in education and vocational training to provide jobs right here at home. ConocoPhillips, Alaska.
7: This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.